Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. The title this morning is Applying the Word. Our text this morning is from 1 John chapter 3, the first three verses, 1 through 3. The theme that uh, I'll be walking us through this morning from the text is this. We must practice the habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves. We must practice the habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves. I am going to uh, tell you that Brett almost exactly 10 years ago to the day, preached on this text. So if you want to go out and hear a better message than you'll hear today, it's on the website. This is is not the definitive sermon on this text. And I'm not going to tell you anything this morning that you don't know, that you haven't already heard if you've been in this church for any amount of time. But I do want to encourage us. And my my hope is that when we leave today, we will be encouraged and invigorated and inspired by God's Word through the Holy Spirit to engage in the practice of the habit of applying the gospel by preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Would you stand while I read the Word of God? Hear the Word of the Lord. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it has not known Him. Beloved, it has not yet been revealed what we will be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies themselves just as he himself is pure. Father, would you please come by your Holy Spirit, speak through me. And let us hear your voice speaking through this text to us this morning, that we might see you as it is face to face, the veil being opened a little bit more today by your word, by your Holy Spirit, that we might be more like you as a result of encountering your word this morning, because we have seen our Lord. Reveal yourself to us, Jesus, that we might be changed. In your name I pray, amen. So here's a brief overview as you take your seats. I'm going to go through these three verses with three questions. I'll tell you what those questions are now. The first question is, is there a need to preach the gospel to myself? Is there a need? Two, what is the gospel? Three, excuse me, why should I preach the gospel to myself? With each of these questions, I'm going to make one point and kind of build off of that point and I don't think I'm going to be wrenching anything out of the text. I think this text is fairly uh, simple and direct and pointing to, to these purposes. So 
Is there a need to preach the gospel to myself? What is the gospel? And why should I then engage in the practice of the habit of preaching the gospel to myself? So question number one, is there a need to preach the gospel to myself? Kelby? Yes, there is. Here's the point that I'm going to make here. There is a tension as a result of the difference in ours, in our current reality and our future reality. There's a tension as a result of the difference in our current reality and our future reality, our current experience and our future experience. Verse 2 says this, Beloved, Now we are the children of God. But it has not yet been revealed what we will be. But when he is revealed, we will know that we will be as he is. Is there a difference? Number one, just kind of uh, quickly moving through these points, there is a difference, okay? There is a difference between our current and our future experience. And that, that difference is one that the text says we ought to be aware of. This is a known unknown. I'm not sure what the future is going to be, but I know it's not the way it is right now. There is a, an almost, an already rather, but not yet. This is what, what's referred to in, in theology as an eschatological dualism. That means something has already happened in God's economy. It's been applied to me fully, but in my experience, I have not yet seen the fulfillment, the filling up of what God has done. And John's telling us this is, this is our state. We live in this state, and he tells us we should know about this. Number two, this difference has an impact. Where does this difference have an impact? This difference has an impact on the way that I see myself, because I see myself now in my current experiences, but I also see myself in light of my future experiences. And secondly, this has a, a an impact on the way that others see me. The way that the world around me, the non-beloved, interacts with me. The way that they estimate my value. What they see in me. And so we can look back at uh, verse 1, and, and John has already told us in verse 1, the world does not know us. Because we've been called children of God, the world doesn't know us. And so there's a tension now. As I walk with my neighbors, as I walk with my coworkers, as I walk in culture at large, there's a tension between them and me because there's a distinction. While we're still occupying the same temporal space, still breathing the same air, there's a difference that's happened in me because of the gospel that hasn't happened in them. And that puts us in a way, at odds. It, it makes a line of separation between us. But secondly, there is a difference and there's a tension in my experience as I walk through this. Because, like you, I still get angry at my neighbor. I still get angry at my children and my spouse. And it's not always because I'm righteous. And I'm only guessing that that may apply to all of us. So, so is there a difference? Is there, is there a need? Well, there is a distinction, and that distinction comes with a tension. 
And finally, to wrap this point up, is there a need? We have to do something with that tension, right? We can't simply live this tension without what I'm going to call a meta-truth. There has to be a foundational truth that, that goes from the beginning of the story to the end of the story that I live in the midst of, but I know there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. I'm in the middle. I understand the beginning. I've been told the end. I trust the end. I'm in the middle. I'm getting there. And I live in light of this, this narrative arc. We all live in light of a narrative arc, right? We go from New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and we start looking forward to Christmas, especially for children. I get to stay up till midnight. I'm getting presents. And in between, I got to go to school. All of us live in some sort of narrative arc. So, we have to do something with this tension. We have to ask ourselves, is this tension good? Is this tension necessary? Is this difference good? Is this difference necessary? And can I live in it? Now, if, if the tension that we experience is good, if we can point to it and say, even though it doesn't feel good, it is good. If we can point to this tension and say this tension is, in fact, necessary, then I have a meta truth. I have now a foundation that I can stand on. So is there a need to preach the gospel to ourselves? I submit yes, because there is a difference in your life that has an impact in your current experience that causes a tension that you live inside of. And that tension, if not dealt with properly, will cause you to suffer. It will cause you ultimately to despair, to lose hope, to lose faith in our loving God. So, Kelby is correct. There is a need. Second question, what is the gospel? Really, Jer? What's the gospel? I'm going to make this point. It is a current affliction to have a small gospel. It's a current affliction in my life. It's a current affliction... It's a common affliction, rather, not current. It's a common affliction to have a small gospel. I guarantee you that each one of us here, the elders, Brett, myself included, each one of us have a small gospel that afflicts us. We haven't yet fully wrapped our minds around the gospel. So let's go to verse 1 here. Verse 1 says, Be this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. So I can ask, what is the gospel? If I ask, what is the gospel? This is interactive time. Now what's the gospel? Real quick. Four answers. Jesus died for our sins. That's one. And keep in score, there's three more after. Jesus rose again. This side of the room's winning, by the way. His whispers. His, I want to get this wrong. He already said I've got a small gospel. <laughs> oh, you go to heaven, right? Absolutely. Your sins can be forgiven. So, the first, uh, first kind of 
point under this is it is natural to have a small gospel. And by natural, it might be better to say sinful, corrupted, broken. It is natural for us to tend towards a small gospel. Um, we, we do this by making partitions in the impact of the gospel and in, in what the gospel is. We, we partition the gospel to certain things. We can view the gospel in its historical context and say there really was a guy named Jesus who really did live and really did die and really did raise from the dead, and that's the gospel. A guy came 2,000 years ago, died for, for our sins, rose from the dead, and that's the gospel, one and done. And for, for much of my life, I lived with this partition in place. When people said, what's the gospel? Well, Jesus died and rose again, and, and I'm saved. The gospel, in other words, had a partition to a particular point in my life back around the mid-90s when I said, Lord, I surrender, and he came into my heart, and I became a, a new creation, I was born again, and that was the gospel. It was something that happened then. We can make this mistake of partitioning the gospel to something that happened then, whether it's then in our life or 2,000 years ago. We can partition this to its sort of judicial effect. Jesus died for sins. We can make this individual, or we can make it corporate. Jesus died for the sins of the world, uh, and depending on what, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Depending on how you view some things, you can you can make the argument that Jesus died for all the sins of all the world. You could make the argument that Jesus died for only the sins of those who are going to be saved, or you could make the argument say Jesus died for my sins, and that's what I know for certain because I've experienced that redemption. And, and what this really boils down to is Jesus, the gospel is Jesus saved me from my sins, and as wonderful as that is, that is not the complete gospel. That is not the full story of what happened. That is not all that we sang about this morning. Marty, I really appreciate the selection of songs this morning. It really glorified and helped us to appreciate and adore the gospel. Thank you. A couple other ways that we can do this. We can partition the gospel into its personal empowering effect. Jesus died uh, you know, at the most crass level so I can be rich and happy and, and never have illnesses. At sort of the, the more moderate level, Jesus died so that I can have a way forward, I can overcome temptation, I can overcome sin, I can be healed from certain things, I can know that God's going to provide for me, my finances will maybe be blessed. Uh, we can, there, there's a personal impact in other words. There's a personal benefit here that we can partition the gospel to where Jesus died, and, and it might be that Jesus died to show me how to live. He showed me, he demonstrated in his death God's love for me. And the gospel is that God loved me. The gospel is that God revealed his love to me through the death of Jesus. The gospel can be for us petitioned to, Jesus died to show me how I can please God, how I can live a life back to God. How I can sacrifice for others. How I can love others and give sacrificially. How I can serve God and obey God and make God happy. How I can satisfy God and please Him. The gospel can be partitioned to that. But again, whenever we partition the gospel to any aspect, we end up with a small gospel. And I'm not going to go into the reasons as to why we partition and, and, 
and how sin distorts that, but I will say this. It is a natural tendency, a sin nature, natural tendency, to have a small gospel. John points out uh, two things that are very crucial to one to us to understand this. Number one, John starts by saying, there is something here worth noting. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1 starts with this word, behold. What John's saying there is pay attention to this. Take a look at this. Be astounded by this. Be amazed by this. He goes on to say, behold what manner. Look at the type of love that's here. Look not only the type of love that's here, but look at how God lavished it out on us. The picture here, if you will, is of taking uh, uh, this handful of icing and just slathering on the cake. Now, you're not going to want to eat that cake if I slather it with my hand. But when God takes his hand of love and takes that slathering of love icing and slathers it onto your life, it becomes a little bit tasty. Amen? And there's something here that John wants us to be astonished by. And further, John knows that we need to be reminded of this. Silly little us. We have to be... John's halfway through his book here. He's halfway through his letter. And he tells them halfway through after telling them, in, verse one, in chapter 1 and 2, this is how you can know that you love God. This is how you can know that you're in God. This is how you can know the light is in you and the life is in you. This is how you can be assured that you're God's. He says, now remember this. Remember the manner of love that God lavished on you. Why? Because we quickly forget. We quickly forget. And we must often be reminded of the glory of the love that God has poured out on us. And what is that love? That we, that you and I, through Christ, might be called the children of God. The impact of the gospel, according to John, causes an essential change. In the beloved. We have become children of God. What this means is that there's a heritage and a bloodline, an image that has been restored. Let's unpack this just a little bit. Premise one. God made Adam in his image. Adam made us in his image. Premise two, sin distorted the image of God in Adam. And when it got passed on to us, that image was distorted. And with that image being distorted was also a relationship, a sonship relationship between God and Adam that became torn, that was broken. So there was an image that God gave a creation to Adam. And there was a particular relationship that God had with Adam. Sin fundamentally distorted that image and broke that relationship. Okay, simple enough, we, we, we get that. Let's flesh that out a little bit more though. Okay, 
how, how does how does Genesis kind of, and, and sort of an arc of Scripture show us this? Well, we see in Genesis that what God had called good, God cursed. Yes? Went from being very good to cursed. What had been a son became an enemy. I don't know about you, but I've never had to put an angel with a flaming sword in my front door to keep my children out. I could say that sort of glibly, but please understand the picture there. God did not push Adam and Eve out of the garden and say, y'all come back now. He set a guard. He said, you may not come back. You are my son. You're no longer my son. Get out. Third, Adam, who had been the co-regent with God, becomes a renegade. God had given Adam the charge over the animals and over creation to protect and to keep it, to cultivate it, co-reigning with God in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of creation. And Adam goes from being a co-regent to being a renegade. A usurper, a traitor on the run. And finally, the patriot becomes a traitor. Patriot coming from the word pater, father country, father. One who honors, one who protects that which is of the fatherland, of the father. A patriot betrays his father, betrays his fatherland becomes a traitor to the crown. Unfortunately, we have enough touchstones in these images to get a picture for what this distorted image, this broken relationship looks like. We understand curse, sort of. Not, not great in our society, but we sort of understand curse. We definitely understand traitor. We understand renegade. We understand outlaw. We understand enemy. All of these happened as a result of the curse. Now, premise three. Premise one was God made Adam, image, heritage. Premise two, sin distorts. Premise three. Because of the gospel, specifically within Jesus, the work that he did, we are... Sorry, my eyes are catching up with me. <laughs> we are different from the non-beloved. Remember, verse 1 says this. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Next statement, therefore, causation relationship here, therefore, the world does not know us. Why? Because it did not know Him. You see, there's, there's a new alignment now. There's now the beloved, the children of God, and the non-beloved, the enemies of God. And even though we still live in this realm, we've been translated into the realm of beloved. We now have more in common with God than with those that we sit next to. 
because of this transaction. And so we see reversal. We see son of Adam, son of earth versus son of God. C.S. Lewis, when talking about this, and Tolkien did a similar thing, uh, the dwarves were seen as son of earth, but not in the way that the sons of Adam were seen. And, and this is sort of Tolkien and, and Lewis for us. But when talking to the dwarves, Aslan would always call them son of earth. And he said it with an affection. But there is a distinction there when he would talk to the sons of earth versus the sons of Adam. In Narnia, for those of you who don't know this, only a son of Adam could be king in Narnia. And it actually translated over into this space trilogy in some ways that are kind of fun to read if you want to do that. But there's a distinction that both Lewis and Tolkien recognized. For Tolkien, when, when the world is created and, and, and the god in, Lewis, in Tolkien's mythology creates the world and, and this bad secondary level angel comes through and starts messing it all up and, and the god figure makes all of the, the mess work together to something beautiful, eventually some of the angels that were with the god figure go to the earth that was created and one of them makes dwarves again, out of the ground. They, they weren't a part of the original picture. They still get put into the whole picture, but it wasn't something that God didn't. And so there's, what, we're, what they're teasing out is that there's a distinction between those who belong to God and those who are merely of this world. There's a difference, in other words, between the beloved, the child, and everything else. This difference this difference itself testifies to our new heritage. Our heritage was broken because of sin. But our heritage now, because the world doesn't know us, that difference, that distinction, that, that tension that we feel testifies to the fact that we have been translated into the realm of the Beloved into the realm of I am a child of God. The world now doesn't know me. Why doesn't the world know me? It used to know me. The world doesn't know me because it didn't know God. And while I used to be of the world, I am now of God. And what's of God is not known by the world. They can't know it. And so this tension that you feel, this is a very practical point here. Please pay attention. The tension that you feel as a believer in a culture that is hostile to God, that is hostile to Christianity, that is hostile to your faith, to the beliefs of Scripture as they are laid out, testifies to the fact that you are of God. At the very least, that should comfort us. This difference also points out to us that we are not yet what we will be. We are children of God. God's love has been lavished on us. He has made us his sons and daughters. But there is 
in our experience currently a limitation to that inheritance that we have been given, that we may rightfully lay claim to. And there is even a difference in the image that we now bear as restored children of God from what it will be in the future. What John is saying to us here is you have to live in light of the meta-truth. You must remind yourself of the love that God has given you. You must remind yourself to be astonished at the fact that God has taken someone who was an enemy, who was cursed, and has made him a friend, a son, a daughter. All the things that God held against us are completely removed. And now what he holds out towards us is unending, fulfilling, perfect love in relationship with our Father. So the third question, that question was what is the gospel? And my, my hope is that, my hope fundamentally is this. Please, please, please be a studious student of the Word of God. And where you see the gospel, let it expand in your mind to be the full gospel. I'm jumping ahead to your, to your applying the Word, okay? But bear with me. Ask the Lord to show you where the gospel that you preach to yourself, the gospel that you live by, has been partitioned, is too small, has been corrupted by sin. It is natural. It is common. None of us are exempt. We will all have good days. Most of us will often have more bad days. I beg of you, please ask God. Ask the Holy Spirit. Invade my mind. Make me to see this rightly. Change this in the way that I understand it so that my understanding of the gospel may expand, may become more glorious, that I may be more astonished, that I may be more bowled over by the reality of what you have done, that I may see you more and more high and lifted up, and that I may cover my mouth and say, I am a man of unclean lips, more and more. This is a freebie. The grandness, the greatness, the size of your sin in your estimation is directly related to how glorious God is in your estimation. If you want to know, am I seeing God more glorious? Ask yourself, do I see my sin as more horrible? If your estimation of your sin is not going higher and higher towards more and more horrible, you warrant. Your estimation of God has probably fallen. Enough said there. So, why should I preach the gospel to myself? Here's the third and final point. Hope in the gospel. That's in quotes. Hope in the gospel as a subject is necessary to move from our current experience to our future experience. Verse 3 says this. And all who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. 
So the, the question here is why should I? What's, what's the benefit? Well, what's this hope? This hope is, is quite, uh, uh, just a couple things here to what this hope is. This hope is I am already something different. I'm already something different. Whether I just had an argument with my spouse, whether I just cheated on my taxes, whether I just flipped somebody driving past me to burn, physically or just in my mind, there is in fact already a difference because I am in Christ. Two, I'm not yet what I will be. If it surprises you when you sin, you don't understand the gospel. If you're ever caught off guard and say, I didn't think I could do that. That seems below me. You don't understand the depravity of sin and you don't understand the gospel. There is one person who will never be surprised by your sin. Ever. He will never, he's never going to look at you. I'll pick on Don. He's never going to look at Don Sr. I said, oh, I cannot believe Don just did that. I did not think Don had that in him. When did God forgive your sins? Give me, give me a year. When, when, when was it, if we could put a year, that God forgave your sins? Before the foundations of the world. Why? That's when the lamb was slain. Okay? Bear that in mind. Your sins, past, present, and future, at the moment of your conversion, had already been put on Christ and paid for. And the forgiveness had already been offered. You received that forgiveness at the point of your salvation, at the point of your conversion. It wasn't a, yes, I for, you were, you were you know, saved on June 4th, 1973. So, up until that point, all your sins are forgiven. At this point, though, work for it, pal. I don't want to belabor this, okay? But I'll tell you this. <laughs> sort of a personal revelation in my early 20s. God knows I'm going to sin. Doesn't shock him. Shouldn't shock me. It should allow me to go back to him quickly. Without a feeling of condemnation. Without a feeling of, uh, of being pushed away. God knew I was going to sin. He knew how I was going to sin. He knew the vile state of my heart as I chose to sin in that moment. And he looked at Christ on a cross and said, you be cursed for him. Paul tells us there is therefore now no condemnation. And so it doesn't surprise me when I sin. And, and because I'm not surprised when I sin, it allows me to walk in more honesty with you and say, I sin, but I'm not what I'm going to be yet. One day, I'll be able to look at you and you'll be able to look at me, and we are not going to sin towards each other, outwardly or inwardly. And it's not going to be because, it's not going to be because I love you more. It's going to be because... My love for God has been perfected by God. 
What John means is that when we see him, we'll be like him. We will see him as he is. Can you see God as he is? Remind me, was Moses able to see God as he is? No. Moses got to see behind parts of God after they had passed through a hand. We will see God as he is. We will see Jesus as he is. And in seeing him as in a mirror, that image that we see in front of us will be reflected back and purify, purge every vestige of our corrupt inheritance, of our broken nature, and that image will be restored. My appetite's wet. Third point here. There is no doubt that we will see him. And I'll marry this to the fourth point. When we see him, we will be like him. This is what I just said. But we have to understand this is a separate point. What's our hope? Our hope is I'm already different. My hope is I'm not yet what I'm going to be. My hope is it's guaranteed I will see him. God's promises are faithful. He will not forsake his word. It has already been done from the foundation of the earth. I will see him. And when I see him, I will be like him. And when I'm like him, there will no longer be any difference between me and him. Now, I don't want to stretch this theology here too much, okay? There's a mystery here that I don't understand. There's a mystery that I don't believe God has fully revealed yet. But for those who are in Christ, Almighty God takes something that He made with His hands and says, You're now my son. My son, who, by the way, is God. And you are now an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. With God. Not junior princes sitting at the junior prince table in a heavenly city. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is the mystery of redemption. That God, he, he didn't send Jesus so that Adam's mistake, the broken thing with Adam could be fixed. He sent Jesus because when Adam was broken, there had to be a new way. And Jesus restored that way. And in restoring that way, co-regent, son, very good, patriot, all of those were restored and taken to a level that Adam himself, in perfection in Eden, could never experience. Please get that. We were not made to live in Eden. We were made for heaven to descend onto earth. For a new Eden. For a new heavenly city in which we rule and reign as kings with our Lord, who at this moment is sitting down at the right hand of God ruling and reigning all things. If that's not a hope, I, I don't have anything. 
So those are three questions. This is our message. I'm going to move to applying the word. I want John, John tells us a couple things. John calls us to this. John calls us, uh, first off, his call is to everyone. When it comes to preaching the gospel to yourself, his call is to everyone who is a believer. There is no one here, regardless of age, regardless of sanctification, that does not yet still need to preach the gospel to themselves every day. John says everyone who has this hope, has present active, who has this hope, not who had this hope, not who will have, who has this hope as a daily experience, purifies himself. So one, John call is to everyone who is a believer. Number two, John calls us to actively maintain this hope. And number three, John calls us to hope in the full, heavy, meaty, savory richness of the glorious gospel. So, just a couple questions. I would ask you to evaluate your gospel. Evaluate the gospel that you preached yourself. Evaluate the way that you conceive of and explain the gospel, whether it's to your children, to yourself, or to a non-believing neighbor or co-worker. Is your gospel partitioned in any way? Is it limited to any particular facet? If it is, let the truth of the gospel blow those walls out. Number two, does the gospel only have impact? I'm sorry, this is a subpoint. Does the gospel, a way to evaluate, does the gospel only have impact on your moral life? Is the gospel only about your sin? Only, only about not going to hell? Only about overcoming sin? Or is the gospel about more than that? Uh, second sort of evaluation question here. Does the gospel pervade in every aspect of your life? Now here's, here's the kicker. This question is really important. As you're driving down the road in your car alone, late for work, does the gospel pervade in your mindset as you make choices driving down the road? Does the gospel pervade when you're passing somebody who's in need on the street. I'm not telling you which way that you should respond. My question is, does the gospel pervade in your life? Is that the primary lens through which you see all of life? If it's not, your gospel's limited. You partition it. Number three, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day increasingly more filling. And in light of the tension that you feel. And uh, Brett, and answer your question, I think I will do an after hours and, and jump off of this one a little bit more. Preach the gospel to yourself in light 
of the tension that you're feeling. You are different because you are a son of God. You are not yet what you're going to be, but you will become what God has made you to be. I'll talk about that more in after hours. I'm thinking I'll probably look at three separate examples and, and, and walk us through you know, sort of a case study. What's this look like? How do I, how do I apply the gospel in this circumstance? Because it, it can be very enriching. It can be very um, inspiring to, to hear this message proclaimed. But then we get out into the world, and, and it is. We're driving down the road, and we're late for something, and someone's cut us off and you've dropped our coffee or the, the lipstick is smeared, whatever it is, how do we apply the gospel in those moments? When tension is at its highest, what does an application of the gospel look like? Father, in light of your word, we are able to see because of your spirit even more deeply into the depth of your love so that when Paul says how high and how wide and how deep and how long is the love of God towards us Father we continue swimming in that river investigating its depth investigating its width Father, would you cause us by your Holy Spirit to be sanctified again today by your gospel, by the fact of your love for us, the fact of your adoption of us, that you have called us into your family and given to us all of the rights of sons and daughters. Father, would you blow out the walls in our minds, not just of the gospel, but of, of who you are. May we see you, Father, today and tomorrow and the next day as even more high and lifted up. May we esteem your holiness. May we revere and fear your holiness with more terror and may we be struck by the power of your love with more awe. And Father, finally, as we experience your love, as we sang this morning, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Father, would you change our hearts? Would you apply the gospel salve to our hearts such that our hearts are turned not by a sense of duty, but by a pull of love. That we would long to live for you. That we would long to please you. That we would long to serve you and to obey you because of the love that we have received. The love that you have placed on us and into us, that it would flow 
out from us back to you in worship and obedience. May it be, Father, for each of us this morning, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Now may the eyes of your understanding be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the exceeding great, I'm sorry, of the riches of the glory of Christ Jesus and the exceeding greatness of his power towards those who believe. Go in the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, having been redeemed by his blood, having been adopted by the Father, and being translated into a new heavenly kingdom in which you will walk. Every day brings you another step closer. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.